Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. There are some issues that have been debated amongst Christians on the topic of abortion. And I'm talking about people who really hate the practice and know that it's contrary to God's law. However, there are different approaches as to how this situation will be remedied. And I believe it's important and valuable to listen and engage in such discussions so long as the framework is biblical and each side is committed to changing their view if truly convinced. The two approaches or the two main approaches that I have seen argued for the last three decades or so has been the idea of an incremental approach. Let's see what we can accomplish. Let's see what we can do step by step to end this practice. And then the idea or the perspective that says anything short of opposition to abortion in an immediate and uncompromising way violates the scripture. So my guest today is someone who can add to this conversation, and turns out he's someone that many people have asked me to have on the podcast for the past year and a half. So for those of you who bugged me, I'm listening. Jason Garwood is a teaching pastor, a writer, an activist, and a professor at Cross and Crown Seminary. He has spent his career seeking to both understand and apply the biblical worldview to every area of life. His aim is to help pastors and churches to be better equipped to engage in the Great Commission by teaching Christians how to find their individual purpose in the kingdom of God and learn how to identify and respond to cultural idols. He's written a number of books, which we'll talk about later. But first of all, Jason, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, Andrea. It's an honor and a pleasure to be be with you and I'm a listener to your podcast anyway, regularly, so it's a joy to be on with you. Oh, very good. Well, hope you'll like listening to the one you're on as well. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> so just to get started, those who have argued for an incremental approach to solving this societal issue will say something like this, regulating it so that late-term abortion is no longer legal is a step in the right direction. And they'll often quote, the fourth chapter of Mark and say, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. In other words, you do it as you can do it. And then on the other hand, there is the abolitionist approach, which backs up a lot of that perspective from Ephesians 5.11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. So Jason, have I framed this argument correctly in terms of these different stances? Yes, I think, I think, I think that's fair. Uh, certainly, there may be other biblical references for the uh, incrementalism side of things where they will sort of just play the long game or they'll use language like we need to uh, remember, yes, we're going into this post-millennial vision in the end, and but you know it takes time to get there and we're in the early church. And so they may attach some sort of eschatological framework to it in order to maybe justify these incrementalist approaches to injustice, especially the issue of abortion. And so I think, I think that's a fair way to, to frame it. Like I said, there are other perhaps passages and justifications for it, but usually it's done from the angle of, in my view, a more humanistic underpinning where we're just sort of taking what we can get but I think that's a fair a fair start to it. There are definitely, I think, before we go too far with it, we definitely want to define those terms as well. And defining them is really helpful. Uh, people could mean, what do you mean by theonomy? Or what do you even mean by post-millennialism? Or these various terms that we use. Uh, sometimes the devil is in the ism, right? Where we have to figure out what is it that, what, are, what is it we're saying? What are we not saying? And I think it's important to say that, 
the people who we're talking about who oppose each other, we're not talking about charlatans who really don't care on what's happening to unborn children. We're talking about people who have a sincere desire to see it end. And the question is the approach. And I've seen heated discussions in either camp maligning the other and saying that you're not really a Christian or whatever. I like hearing what you said, that there you can approach it from different perspectives. But what we're trying to distill is what is the most scriptural application of what we're called to do. Right. I think that's a fair, fair assumption because my, you know, my problem, my problem, especially with other abolitionists who have been in this fight for a very long time is seeing what we view as compromise coming from the incrementalist approach. Now, many on that side will say, well, we're not compromising. We, you know, we're, we're in the fight. Look at us. We raise millions of dollars every year. And, and, you know, (laughs) our perspective is sometimes, well, maybe that's actually a problem. Maybe, maybe you don't need to raise millions and millions of dollars to hold marches and, and, and write letters condemning bills of abolition and promoting bills of, of compromise, at least from our perspective. And, and maybe, maybe you need to approach it more from the ethical aspect of it. And maybe there are some considerations there. Why, why is it always about, you know, we're raising millions of dollars for these nonprofits that basically are working against total bills of abolition. I think that's where it gets really frustrating. We've seen that in, in Texas and in Oklahoma. We just saw it recently in Louisiana as well. And methinks we're probably going to see that in Virginia uh, here too as we move forward. But you know, I don't want to I don't want to necessarily just <laughs> this is always the issue whenever we deal with these issues out in the public. But the, the main thing is defining our terms and also let's try not to lambaste each other. But let, let's try to to hear one another out. Let's try to to, you know, come reason together. And that's been difficult. Truthfully, it's been difficult, especially with pr- the pro-life establishment, if we can call it that, uh, where it just seems like the, the same thing happens. The same dog and pony show happens every single time where you get a bill of total and immediate abolition, like what happened down in Louisiana just a month ago. And then you have organizations like the ERLC and uh, right to life and these other organizations that have for you know dozens and you know maybe even since Roe itself have been working to raise funds in order to essentially what you know keep abortion legal safe and legal they don't want to prosecute the mother there's other issues there as well but I think that incrementalism itself is coming from an unchristian presupposition and that's something I'm going to talk about in our abolitionist conference coming up. Okay, well, at the end of this um, discussion, I hope you'll alert people about the conference. But let's go back to something you said. You talked about that groups within the so-called banner, and I'm not going to say pro-life because I don't mind saying I'm anti-abortion because I am. I think it's wrong. I think the Bible says it's wrong. And because people haven't liked the anti part of it, they shy away from it and say, no, 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 we're pro-life. And I understand the sentiment, but I think pro-life can end up being such a vague term that you have people who will say they are pro-life, but don't think that they can tell someone else what to do. In which case, whatever they're pro, it's certainly not being obedient to God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair, Andrea. Absolutely. Uh, I don't really like the term pro-life because from what I've seen in these quote unquote pro-life establishment, you know, agencies, nonprofits has been compromised year after year after year. And so uh, while, yeah, while the term may have its place um, within this discussion, it seems like we have years of compromise through the, you know, through the legislative process, but I don't like, I'm with you. That's why I prefer abolitionism. You know, we, we developed a website, abolition101.com, where you can learn and read about these concepts. And it's really just a teaching tool that's there for people, but there is a difference. And and sometimes we we like to, as abolitionists frame the argument a certain way, because you, you know, as well as, as I do, that we have this culture right now that's uh, disheveled and decrepit, and it's following the natural outcome of humanistic uh, worldviews and so on. And one thing that they'll say back to you, they being, of course, the unbelieving humanist paradigm, which you know expresses itself in atheism, new ageism, all of that. But what they'll say is, well, pro-life, but what are you for or against the death penalty? 
And suddenly you're sort of in this whataboutism uh, phase of the conversation. And so I, I think that's why abolition generally as a principle with the tenets of abolition helps us understand and situate the, the conversation within a biblical framework. So we're working from those presuppositions and not just a label that's thrown around. When people will throw capital punishment into the mix, and I've seen even with the recent school shooting memes that go up and say, you know, we'll talk about abortion once you deal with these school shootings. And, and I'm thinking, really? So the massacre of children in a school is categorically worse than the massacre of children in the womb. And because people are not theonomic, in other words, they're not thinking as God would have us think according to the scripture, they think that they have to sort of, you know, align with one group in society as opposed to another, rather than saying, thus saith the Lord. Right. That's exactly it. And that's the identity politics issues that we have, have right now, because we, we saw what happened when this leaked document from the Supreme Court regarding Roe v. Wade, and, and apparently they're going to be overturning that, I, I would assume, in June. They have a majority of opinion, and uh, it, you know, sounds like that, that's what they're going to do. And when that was leaked, you know, you see Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren walking, marching down to the steps of the Supreme Court here close, close by us in D.C., and having sort of this powwow and frustrating moment and a lot of people gathered who are supportive of abortion rights and, and they just lose their mind over this. But then, you know, a few weeks later, you have them losing their minds over uh, the death of these children, these innocent children in a school and, and the issues surrounding that. So it's, it's like this, it makes me wonder sometimes what world am I living in here <laughs> where you, you're, you freak out, rightfully so, for the shooting of these, you know, nine and ten-year-olds, but you you lose your mind over your bloodlust over the issue of abortion. So there's so much inconsistency that goes on, and that's why I think it kind of to your point and what you made, what you said there, we need to be able to have a biblical theonomic worldview, and that's where we can ground the discussion and working from those presuppositions. Dr. Rushduni, who I know you're a student of talked about how we were coming to the end of the age of humanism. And that inconsistency that you talk about is proof that humanism has no true foundation that will hold up. So as a result, it's almost like the church needs a council, like the early councils of the church to say, look, we don't care what the world thinks. Let's make sure that we're in touch with scripture. And maybe this is what your abolitionist conference is really all about, bringing people together for that. Because you don't have to say there's been no benefit since organized pro-life work. But the question is, does God give us, you know, does he grade us on a curve? I mean, is a 75% okay with God? Or does he want complete obedience to his word? Hmm. Well, I mean, I know you're asking that somewhat facetiously because uh, I think that this is part of why we've had the secularization of the church. I was going back through the uh, the book, little book by Hebden Taylor that was called The New Legality, and Dr. Rushdeny wrote the the foreword to it, and he talked about humanism being this religion that encroaches upon everything, and and so I was refreshing myself as I was studying and uh, this week and. And all of that kind of, I guess, jumped back out at me because what we're dealing with, and that's that's the issue within the church, are we going to situate ourselves upon the word of God? Are we going to think through the ramifications of what, what we're confessing when we say that this Bible that I'm holding in my hand here is the word of God and that it speaks to all areas of life? And it, either it does or it doesn't, but we need to be able to align ourselves to it. And, and you're right. That's kind of what the goal of our conference is. Absolutely. But that should be the goal of the church, generally speaking. And to answer your question there, God does demand obedience to his law. You, you quoted Ephesians 5.11, do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even expose them, as the LSB puts it. Proverbs 17.15, he who justifies the wicked and he who con condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to Yahweh. So God's demand, just think about personal holiness. Does God demand us to be holy or is he, is he okay with just, you know, a little bit, a, a sort of 50%, you know? No, he demands, he demands the whole thing. When God 
calls a man, he comes, bids him to come and die. He wants us to, to uh, be utterly consumed with his holiness, with his, his, uh, his program to riff off of Abraham Kuyper's work, our program. So these, all these Bible verses, Micah 6, verse 8, he, he has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does Yahweh require of you, but to do justice, to love loving kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So it's not a, it's, we know that man is not perfect. Man is a sinful being. He, he needs to be redeemed. And when he's redeemed, we know that it's a, a lifelong struggle it's a lifelong process of repentance and faith and growth and holiness and, and the renewing of our minds. And, and there's all of those elements, absolutely. And no doubt God has, has uh, you know, sympathy for us as he's given us his Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and unrighteousness. But when it comes to these issues of justice, all of these passages, Amos 5, Jeremiah 22, these passages demand something from us. And it demands our whole heart. It demands, uh, God demands everything to be in accordance to his law word. And that's what the discipleship of the nations look like. So the term itself, abolition, I believe scares some people. Just like at times the word Christian reconstruction scares people because of an earlier connotation after or before and after the war between the states. So why do you believe that abolition best describes the thrust and purpose of the work you're doing to end abortion? Well, I think kind of what we alluded to earlier, we are trying to give a definition to it. It's not like abolition itself is just a term that's thrown around with no meaning and no context. So we, we do believe in the tenets of abolition, that there, it's uh, biblical and theological, it's based on the word of God. We want to presuppose the authority of scripture, and we want to presuppose that we as humans are created in the image of God, uh, that God has come to save us, to rescue us. We're presupposing uh, the scriptural narrative, the scriptural story, the authority of God's word, and we believe it's providential. So God's actively superintending all of history. He's The law is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Uh, We believe in God's providence. And so we reject humanistic pragmatism. We reject compromise. We believe that God is superintending history. And we also believe that the gospel is the answer. The, The answer to abortion is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Abortion is a sin. It ought to be a crime because, because it's murder definitionally. Uh, But the gospel is at the center of what we confess as an abolitionist. It's also the work of the church. It's body driven. The church is ordained by God to carry out God's plan and purposes in the world. So, you know, we, we need the church to do it. It's also immediate and uncompromising because God tells us repeatedly to establish justice, to, to not show partiality. It's one of the central features of God's law, which is why it makes it so great and why humanistic law becomes a problem. And we're also told to not decree iniquity. Woe to those who do such things, who call good evil and evil good. And then the Bible also says repeatedly not to acquit, acquit the guilty. Uh, so those are just the basic tenets of abolitionism. So definitionally, as we speak of, well, why do we think it's a better term? Well, it's a better term because we believe we have a worldview that's coming right behind it, that's left in its wake. And, and, and the biblical worldview itself has to be fleshed out in society. But abolition doesn't even necessarily, you mentioned the war between the states and the issue of chattel slavery. Certainly, William Wilberforce spent a whole lot of time fighting against what what he called gradualism. He says that it distracts from the real goal, and I think he's right. Uh, But any sort of systematic or systemic injustice, like this whole massive problem of abortion, um, any of these situations that are unjust, uh, it could be murder, it could be, you know, I want to abolish the government schools too. (laughs) So (laughs) there's a lot of things that are not jiving with the Christian program. <laughs> and, and so abolition itself, uh, Jesus was a great abolitionist. He abolished death, Paul says. And, and so there's, there's this uh, negation of sin and this uh, desire in scripture to see sin put away. And that's why repentance is, is such a, you know, re- it's an integral aspect to abolitionism itself is repentance. Repentance from what? Repentance from national sin, covenantal unfaithfulness, and those sorts of things. Yes. Now, I know some abolitionists, and I, I don't want to put, I mean, you can put everybody in a big group, and that's a great way to evade 
looking at people as individuals. Some will say nothing has changed since the advent of organized pro-life, but that's not true. Babies have been saved. Children have been adopted. People were spared the sin of murdering their own children. But that doesn't mean the approach necessarily is biblical. We know the scripture says God works all things together for the good, for those who love him and those who are the called according to his purpose. So no one is negating on your side of this issue that good things have happened as a result of caring people, as a result of pregnancy resource centers. These are things that are positive but you're talking more along the lines of we can't expect God's blessing if we don't attempt to control and abhor that which he hates. Right, because the issue is also covenantal. When we think about covenantal guilt and Daniel interposing for the, his people in his prayer, and certainly Dr. Rushton, he wrote a tremendous amount about a theology of the land and the blood guiltiness and and how God views us as a covenantal society. And, and so, yeah, definitely good things have happened, no doubt. Uh, crisis pregnancy centers have sprung up, and they're able to uh, work with women and giving them free ultrasounds. And, and certainly, no doubt, babies have been spared because of that. But you're right. The, the main issue, though, out of that is how are we approaching this covenantal guilt that we are swimming in? How are we approaching the legalization of murder in the womb? And we can't approach it like, basically, we can't approach it from a pragmatic standpoint. We have to approach it from the word of God. Immediatism is this conviction based on God's word, the authority of God, that evil itself, whether it's evil in one act or a systematic evil, like this system of abortion that's you know federally protected and so on, we believe that it's to be abolished swiftly and without compromise. Compromise. So we need to be able to use biblical and ethical means to achieve a biblical and ethical end or a goal. And that's the primary difference between immediatism and incrementalism. As incrementalism would say, well, no, not necessarily. We don't have to abolish it swiftly and without compromise because sometimes we just have to take what we can get. Sometimes uh, we have to just go with the flow, and, and it's a process, and you know how politicians are and these types of things that that's said. And I, I think it's, it boils down to, to this, too, is the question that should be driving us as far as immediatist perspective is this. In our pursuit of establishing justice, does, does this particular act or this particular legislation or even a judicial determination from the courts does that itself honor Christ and his word? It's a very simple question. Does this heartbeat bill, which is a piece of legislation, does it honor Christ and his word? Well, some say, well, yeah, it, it, it helps prevent the deaths of some. Well, but is that particular action and the consequences of that action, is it honorable to God? How does God view it? Does he view it as compromise? Does he view it as an act of injustice? Uh, you had the last year in Texas, there were 20 some thousand abortions between May and August, September 1st, they had a heartbeat bill that went, at, went into effect September 1st, of 2021, September through December, you had less than 10,000 abortions. And you have people saying, well, see, we saved lives. We, we, we saved so many lives because there could have been 20,000, but we only had 10,000. And this is just mind boggling to me because what is God looking at? Is he looking at the 10,000 who were possibly going to be murdered, or is he looking at the 10,000 who were, in fact, murdered? And I think that's where we have to, to situate the conversation about immediatism and incrementalism within the, the convictions that we're bringing to the table. Are we, are we elevating man's reason, pretending neutrality? pretending to be objective, like, you know, what Kant insisted, Emmanuel Kant insisted that we could reason autonomously, and that we have to reason autonomous, autonomously. Or are we saying, no, we are going to submit to God and his word. Are we going to see evil for what it is? And are we going to base our decisions upon that so that we don't acquit the guilty or convict the innocent? Right. You know, I like to think in analogies. Pharaoh wanted an incremental approach to the children of Israel, the children of, you know, the Hebrew people to go and worship God in the wilderness. And God would have no part of it. 
And each time Pharaoh posed an incremental approach, a new plague was visited upon him. And let's put this into also other categories. You know, would it have been better if gunmen go into a school and just kill two children as opposed to 19? In other words, if we had an incremental approach to these things, people would say, that's crazy. How can you do it? So, Jason, why do you think good-meaning people embrace incrementalism? Is it because they're afraid of pushback? Or do you think they just have so much humanistic thinking that they don't even realize it's not biblical? Yeah, that's that's a great question. It's something I was pondering today as I was studying and prepping for our conference. I think that at the base level, I think there are a couple of reasons, but at the base level, one is the issue of repentance. It's it's not feeling the weight, the covenantal guilt that we should all feel for either silently standing by and letting this happen, much like people, Christians included, did that during the Nazi Holocaust time. <laughs> so if we don't feel the weight of that. We're not really going to be repentant about it. And part of that repentance, though, isn't just the not getting an abortion, but it's also the active trying to posture ourselves in society with a consistent Christian ethic. So it's repentance, I think, that's lacking. But also, I mentioned it earlier, it, it is the, the secularization of the church. In a lot of ways, we have just decided that man's reason is much better of an option than biblical Christianity. And I think that's probably contributing to it. I, I usually, I'll use the analogy with uh, children as well, uh, especially children who are, are already born, that is outside the womb. And people will, if you, especially this is analogous because it's a, we're dealing with actual children at this point. So it hits a little bit more closer to home. But if there was a law, because by the way, people do do that with uh, slavery. You know, we'll let the slaves who are 20 and older go free. And therefore, you know, so that analogy does fit. But what if there was a law in America that says, you know, from children uh, who are born all the way up to 10 years old, you know, you can hire an assassin and it's totally fine. Well, what would the church's response be? Should we, in an act of repentance, God, how could this blood guilt come upon us? We have totally forsaken your word. We we have trusted in the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You know, we're, we're in that Isaiah chapter one moment where we're gathering and praying, but God's not listening because we haven't cared about justice. We haven't cared about these things. So repentance should be there. But we also wouldn't come to that situation and say, well, you know, Let's legislate that if they're eight, nine, and 10, you can't hire an assassin. But children's, you know, uh, who are born one minute after all the way through age seven, you can. Well, what insane person is going to stop and think, well, that's okay too, or that's, that's a good step in the right direction? No, we should demand it immediately. And that would be basically akin to perhaps getting involved in a larger, bigger way rather than just having a march once a year, but demanding our legislators being on the phone 24-7, we would be there. So I don't know what it is other than the fact that the abortion industry is quite sanitized. You know, you can go and do that in the privacy of a nice edifice, a nice building. The Planned Parenthood in D.C. is just a, a wonderful, as far as edifice is concerned, it's appealing. It doesn't look like a death camp, but it is, and we know what's going on in there. But they've sanitized it, and so Christians have lived just comfortable lives, deciding not to repent of it and also deciding not necessarily to be involved in, in taking it seriously. You had my good friend, Ron Kronz on the, on the podcast. Yes. Ron likes to say all the time, you know, if they were doing this to pastors, I think the church might wake up. <laughs> <laughs> and, right. And so right. just, just follow the logic here. It's really very simple. Well, take a look at how those who have now considered that their right to kill has been taken away. They talk about justice and yet when you talk to these same people about justice for the unborn, they're not even contending anymore that they're not people. They're just saying justice for me is more important than justice for them. And I think that's part and parcel why many in the church are even afraid to call a woman who voluntarily goes in to have an abortion for whatever reason someone participating in murder, that somehow or other we've bought into this idea that there are certain groups of people you can't criticize no matter what they're doing. Yeah, it's, a, it's basically a reification problem. You have the women's collective rights 
that are taking precedent over against the rights of individual persons in the womb. So, you know, it's the same one in the many problem that Dr. Rushdini explored. It finds itself here in this issue where the, the, the collective, this incohate collective of quote unquote women's rights, you know, they frame it in the healthcare discussion and it's a part of healthcare. And again, trying, trying to sanitize it. And you're reifying a, a collective group of people, whereas you're on that altar, you're sacrificing individual rights. Same thing. We go out you know, in front of abortion clinic and you're against women's rights. No, we're actually, we're, we're for women's rights, especially the, the daughter that's about to be murdered in there, <laughs> you know? And right. so there's no, there's no consistency in that worldview. And that's why, you know, presuppositionally, as we think about how we function as Christians in God's word, we need to be able to have the consistency in being anchored in the word of God so that we can discern what is just and what is unjust and be able to call it as it is. Uh, we're, we're recording this just on the eve of gay pride month, you know, and here we are where it's just practically almost compulsory every year and everybody's on that train and you can't call that out. You, you are not allowed to preach the gospel against sexual deviancy. And so we sort of have a humanistic culture that likes to favor certain segments of people all the while falling into the trap of collectivism. As harsh as it may sound, but it's true. I think there are a lot of professing believers who are ashamed of the gospel. They're ashamed to say, this is what God's word says. And so they try to be marketing agents for God as if he needs one. And what they do is that they set up this, um, I don't know, di- dichotomy. Either you're for the unborn baby or you're for the pregnant woman who doesn't want to be pregnant. Well, how has it ever been a value if someone says, I'm about to turn right, and you know if they turn right, they're going to drive off a cliff. If you care, whether or not you know the person, don't turn right, there's a cliff. Sparing someone from having the designation as someone who has murdered is a grace that's being offered to this person. Because many women, as you know, look back on their decision, and they didn't have the perspective of really, what am I about to do and what will be the long-term consequences? Yeah, that's true. Uh, Herman Duver called it Im- imminence philosophy. It's, it's the, sum- the assumption that man's reason is what takes priority over God's, God's ethics. And if we aren't willing to stand on the authority of scripture and be willing to call people through the preaching of the gospel, to, to beckon them, to come and be forgiven in Christ and to, to have those sins forgiven, if we're unwilling to be bold about that, then I think the logical answer is what you said. We're, we're probably ashamed of it. And it's, it's difficult to be a Christian in America today. And the reason it's difficult is because we have chosen to walk in this humanistic path of, of self-discovery, of self-invention, instead of relying on the self-sufficient, self-explanatory word of God. And when, when you do that, you are pretty much consumed by the world. And so much worldliness has taken over. I mean, it's mind-numbing to me, Andrea, that in Louisiana, Christians shut down a total bill of abolition. Well, we don't want to prosecute the mother. Well, she's hiring an assassin. If she did that with a, a child who was two years old, she'd be put on trial for murder. I, uh, I, I wanted to go back to this, Jason. So yeah. there are people who are listening who hopefully embrace what you're trying to say here in terms of pandering to a humanistic mindset. Did the, in these various states where they've had these bills proposed and shot down, have you had private meetings with some of the pro-life groups before you get into the public eye and had attempts to resolve it? And is there anything that listeners can do if a bill is proposed again or initially in their state to not have it end up the way it's ended up in defeat from your experience? Hmm. Yeah, I, I personally, I haven't. I mean, I've, I've talked with pro-lifers that are in that camp of we want abortion to go away, but we're not willing to support bills that prosecute a mother. And that, that you know, it's never really gone well truthfully, but, and those have been few and far between, but a lot of times these, these are the, the uh, ostensible Christians 
who are, are coming into these, you know, through the expression of a nonprofit like Right to Life or something like that, or the ERLC, they were a part of signing this massive document that's out there shutting down this bill in Louisiana. Talking to them can be very frustrating. Uh, it, it's very challenging because you're trying to essentially get a confessing Christian to be consistent in their ethics and to be grounded in, in God's word. And I think for people who are listening, who, uh, when those opportunities come up, and Lord willing, that's going to be happening here in Virginia very soon for the next legislative session, but we need to be able to have Christians who are willing to do the difficult task of calling out potentially their brother or sister who's sitting next to them in the pew or the cozy chair, whatever your church is, and saying to them, we have to be consistent on this. We have to, to view this through, the, for the, through God's lens, through the word of God. We can't, we can't just you know, go with the flow and, and let the humanists or, or history, as if history you know, is able to reason on its own. You know, history takes its course. History will decide. Well, history is not a, <laughs> doesn't have a personality. We have to be able to talk to people and be willing to try to be persuasive, to be winsome, to stand on scripture, to, to stand on what God's law demands from us. And, and that could get ugly, certainly. It, it's been ugly in Texas. A man like Je- um, uh, Jeff Leach, I think that's his name. I know it's Leach, John Leach, something. Uh, he's a Christ- church-going Christian, and he's shut down bills of abolition repeatedly. Uh, the work of Bradley Pierce and other abolitionists in Texas have been constantly for a decade now submitting these bills. But these quote-unquote Christians are are shutting it down. And <laughs> Andrea, it might, it might need to be something uh, like, church discipline process. Yes. You know, with a with a politician sitting him down and saying you're a member of this church, you are the member of the body of Christ, you are continually legislating the assassination of boys and girls whether it's a 20 week ban or a heartbeat bill or whatever, you need to repent. <laughs> and so I, you know, th- this is where the church is able to using their ecclesiastical sanctions put the screws, put the pressure where it needs to go and and I don't know that it's going to change until we really start doing that. I don't either. And COVID taught us a lot of things about churches that were going to remain faithful to God's word and those that were going to bow to the hand of the state. So it might mean that people who have an understanding of what you're talking about no longer align themselves with compromisers. But, you know, some people would say, Jason, that abortion is judgment on our nation, we're killing the next generation. Um, and that as long as there's murder in people's hearts, even if you had these abolition bills, it might not change anything. They might go back to back alley abortions. And this may sound crass on my part, it, but if people went back to back alley abortions, it would mean that they were hiding something that everybody knew that was wrong. I'm not so sure making back alley abortions the reason not to go ahead and say, this is sin, this is murder, this violates the sixth commandment. I mean, so it's like the people who say, you're trying to end the public schools, and you and I would say, amen. (laughs) It wouldn't be something we were embarrassed about. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Well, I, I, it's as simple as God blesses faithfulness to his law word, no matter, no matter the social context. I'm preaching through the, some of the prophets right now. And you look at the life of Isaiah, and especially Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, and everything he endured. I mean, just, it's just incredible. And here he was the only prophet willing to say, you know, Babylon's coming. You're just going to have to deal with it. Nobody else wanted to believe that. All the other false prophets certainly weren't encouraging Jehoiachin and Jehoiakim, the kings at the time, to to submit to Babylon. I mean, we had to fight Babylon. And, and so Jeremiah was unpopular, very unpopular. But no matter the social context that we find ourselves in, God blesses, blesses faithfulness. And there's no such thing as getting out of covenantal judgment, which we agree we're under. We don't get out of that through continued transgression or, or subs, uh, obstinance or having recalcit- recalcitrant hearts that, that are just stuck on their own way and doing whatever is right in our own lives, which scripture says leads to death. And so we've sinned our way in. You don't sin your way out of it. You repent your way out of it. Exactly. Now, some people would say, hey, look, guys, in this state, in this state, in this state, it didn't work. So your tactics, your perspective isn't um, what's going to work. How long did it take William Wilberforce to accomplish what he set out to do? 
many, many years. And it, and it may take that long. I mean, it may take many. We know in America, it ended in bloodshed of over 600,000 people. It, it'll, it may take time, but that's one thing about immediatism that we're not naive about. We know that it's going to take time, but we're not going to pretend that, that these quote unquote steps are righteous because the end and the goal have to match because God demands consistency and righteousness and justice. So we can't have any legal means or any sort of rhetoric that's going to betray what we're trying to do in the long run. That's hypocrisy. The church is called to teach the world. So we, what are we teaching the world through our, through our um, activism and through our social efforts? Well, we should be teaching them consistency. We should be teaching them the firmness of God's word. And so it is going to take time. And that's okay. We all understand. That's why we can, our, uh, confess as abolitionists that we believe in the providence of God. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's both. So we need to be able to repent our way out. But you don't repent your way out by compromising on those means saying all along, well, I want to get to this sort of end. Uh, so it, it, it may take a long time, but it, you know, we're supposed to be consistent in the, Christian, in the Christian life. Indeed. So tell us about the conference that's coming up, where, when, and how people can participate. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, AbolishAbortionVirginia.com is the website. And we have been organizing, a lot of states have, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, many other states have been jumping on and, and trying to have an online presence. But we're having a conference Saturday, June 11th, and that's here in Fauquier County, Virginia, where we are. You have to RSVP to get location and hotels and all that information. Um, but that is uh, the conference coming up. And we have some great speakers that are going to be there. I already mentioned my brother, Ron Kranz. He's going to be talking about blood guilt and uh, the obligation of the church and the jurisdiction of Christ. I'm going to be talking about what I'm calling smash mouth immediatism, <laughs> because <laughs> there are some who call it smash mouth incrementalism while well, I'm stealing the word back. Uh, <laughs> Alan Cohen's a good brother. He's with Ron and Street Church. He's going to be talking about the Christian response to abortion. And then Christian Raymond's going to come. Christian's going to talk about the Virginia politics and some of the landscape and some of the things to, to think about. So we're going to have a panel discussion, a Q&A session. Our goal is to educate. Uh, the, it's a free event. We're going to have lunch. It's going to be a great day of fellowship and strategy as we seek to labor here in the state of Virginia. So you are welcome to come. Just need to RSVP uh, ahead of time. And that's abolishabortionvirginia.com. Will it be virtual as well if people who are in different parts of the country want to get a handle on what you're doing, maybe to replicate it in their community? Is this something that they'll be able to zoom in on and such? Yes, absolutely. Well, we're going to try to make sure we have a live stream for it. I say try because sometimes those can be finicky depending on cell phone reception. Yes. Uh, the, ven the venue doesn't have great internet option, <laughs> an internet option for us, but we are going to record it and then put it up later. But make sure you follow the Abolish Abortion Virginia Facebook page. If you're on Facebook, you can do that. And definitely make sure you check out the website because we'll post more there as well. So earlier, I alluded to the fact that you have written a number of books and you are not a one issue. Well, I guess you are a one issue teaching pastor <laughs> in as much as your issue is where to fear God and keep his commandments. So in that regard, I guess you're a one issue person. But you have written, and I'm just looking at the titles of the books that appear on your website, Health for All of Life, which I have read and utilized in terms of how to make yourself healthy to stay in the game. You've also written Reconstructing the Heart. I, I love this title. I haven't read it yet, but I will. Have Yourself an Eschatological Christmas. I started singing that in terms, Have Yourself a Merry Christmas. And then The Politics of Humanism. So if you had to describe why you got into these other areas other than abortion, and you even you know, were, were part and parcel of the Warrington Declaration in terms of COVID, et cetera. Talk about yeah. the overall thrust you have in your ministry work. It sort of falls under the banner of all of Christ for all of life. I know, I know other Christians and churches have used that, and, and, and that's certainly my, my mantra. Uh, probably about 12 years ago when I was first introduced to the writings of Dr. Rush Juni, Dr. Bonson, Dr. North, 
And uh, it was it was reading those men and, and seeing, wait a minute, there's a comprehensive worldview here. <laughs> we're supposed to do something with it. And, and all of those men said, hey, essentially, they were they were the, the uh, forerunners in the sense that they were breaking ground. And for me, uh, learning and reading and, and realizing, well, hey, you know, I need to be able to uh, develop some of these ideas as well and certainly apply them to today. And that's really what my efforts have been. I, I sort of come at it from a pastoral uh, angle, especially in a book like uh, Reconstructing the Heart, which is a theology of emotion and just learning how we deal with our emotions and why they're a good thing and, and, and you know, how those things balance together. The, the eschatological Christmas was a sermon series I did, uh, just trying to help people understand the eschatological nature of, of Christmas and the coming of Jesus and the advent of Christ. So these books are meant to just sort of say, hey, here's the, here's the biblical worldview. This is probably what we need to be thinking about, especially in the politics of humanism, talking about war. And what does the Bible tell us about war, about sexuality, uh, about even things like the drug war? How should we, how should we view drugs? I, that, that's kind of just me put it, putting, putting myself out there and teasing out some of these biblical passages. And, uh, you know, a, a listener may read one and think that, oh, that's, that's not how I would do. Well, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, you can go ahead and write, write a response if you want. Um, but especially with health for all of life, because of my wife's story of ba- battling and fighting Lyme disease and, and me learning about health. And then of course, all of a sudden we have this COVID issue. Yes. Uh, that, that was me taking our website, healthforalloflife.com. And, and with the help of um, Bill Evans and Jack Campbell, trying to put this together in book form so we can educate people how to, how to take control of themselves. And that's at the end of the day where self-government is the foundational government. And I know that's something you, you would uh, agree with. We need to be able to uh, take control over our bodies, our own health, not farm out our spirituality to the pastor, not farm out our health to the doctor. Uh, we need to be able to, to think critically ourselves. And, and so those books are just meant to be resources. They're pastoral in nature, trying to help people think through, through those topics. Yeah, well, especially with your health for all of life, why I gravitated towards it is that my view of health is this. First of all, I know I'm not going to add um, a day to my life that God hasn't ordained. So when I came into this world, he ordained it. When I leave this world, he ordains it. But as much as it applies to me, I want to stay in the game. And one of the things that illness does is it often keeps you out of the game. Now, again, if God so wills that I were to have a, a condition or a disease that made it so that I couldn't do what I'm doing now, so be it. And I would accept what came from the hand of God. But if you don't know what enhances health as opposed to what hinders health, you're going to be at a deficit. And that's why I appreciated the book. One thing before we go in your bio, and I mentioned it at the beginning, but I want to zero in on it as a last thought before we end our discussion. It says that your goal, your aim is to help Christians apply the Great Commission and help them find their individual purpose in the kingdom of God and learn how to identify and respond to cultural idols. Would you just talk a little bit about cultural idols and what that would mean to someone who says, well, I don't have any statues in my house. I mean, I don't, I don't think I have idols. Are there idols that people may have, but aren't aware of? Yeah, definitely. I I sort of attached cultural as a description of the idol, mostly in terms of the fact that the Christian world and life view, it, it stems from scripture uh, it's meant to be applied to ourselves. Our, our hearts are to be regenerated and changed. Um, our families are to be discipled. Uh, kids are supposed to have a Christian education. And then it sort of works itself out from there. Churches are supposed to be uh, discipleship centers where we're educating people how to apply the worldview that we have in Scripture, how to fear God, how to, how to obey His commandments. You know, you got to be able to know who God is, and you got to know, know what His commandments are. And then from there, we sort of find ourselves in this situation, in this culture, which, as Henry Van Til said, is religion externalized, right? Whatever our convictions and presuppositions are, uh, Dewey Verd called it that ground motive that stems from the heart, this, these faith commitments that are, are pre-theoretical or even supra-theoretical, uh, these faith commitments that are just there, 
And we live in this culture where those things, the heart is expressing itself. And so those expressions end up finding themselves either in a culture uh, that, whether that's art or media or business or economics, any of those categories we want to want to define, those cultural expressions are either going to be faithful to God because men and women are regenerate and faithful to God himself, or those expressions are going to be unfaithful to God. And so Christian Reconstructionists, you know this, <laughs> Andrea, we usually... Uh, get criticized. Well, you you just care about politics. Well, you've written on homeschooling and Christian education. I've written on health and other uh, authors have written on other topics. So it's not like we only focus on politics, but that is one aspect of where do, what, where do idols manifest themselves? Uh, greed in the heart, envy in the heart, covetousness in the heart ends up latching onto some sort of cultural expression. And that could be humanistic government. It could be the sin of abortion what we were just talking about. It could be all of these different things. Um, But at the end of the day, the great idol of our time is the elevation of self, the elevation of reason, the elevation of of our own emancipation from God's law as it's perceived today, Uh, being free to express yourself, to change your pronouns, to change your gender, to be able to uh, break free of not only God, but also the modernist issue of nature and science and that's why they don't really talk much about science, depending on what we're talking about, exactly. <laughs> whether it's gender or not. So I think that's kind of what I'm getting at with cultural idols is there's, there's expressions in, in society, in culture. It could be in a church, a family, uh, it could be in a, in a local you know, county board of supervisors meeting. Wherever it is, idols will prance around because men, are, men have hearts and those hearts express themselves. So your books, where are they available? Uh, they can be found on Amazon.com. I'd like to figure out a way to make them available in other places, but just don't have the time. <laughs> so they're they're there. They're Kindle uh, editions, and certainly, if anybody wanted a PDF, they could just send me a message either on Facebook or Gab. Uh, and but, how would they yeah. reach you on those platforms? Yep, just uh, search my name, Jason okay. Garwood. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Gab, and uh, my website is JasonGarwood.com, where I update things here and there. Uh, but certainly that's how a lot of people reached out, reach out to me. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Are you, you hopeful? Are, are, are things moving in a direction? Are, are you, do you wake up discouraged or encouraged? Both. <laughs> okay. There's an honest answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, discouraged because I'm tired of, of seeing uh, the, the fruit of ridiculous politics, but I'm also encouraged because I know Christ is King and, and he has, he has us, uh, he has us surrounded, so we're not going to get away from him. And uh, I, I'm encouraged. One thing I will add, Andrea, on the tail end here, I am encouraged because we just launched a nonprofit called the Virginia Center for Public Theology. Hmm. And uh, that's something that's brand new this month. We're working on it. The website's vacpt.org. But we're just trying to get things underway because we want to use it as a platform for engaging engaging the humanistic expressions and culture that we find ourselves in. So I'm encouraged. At the end of the day, I'm encouraged. I have a a wife, three kids. God is good. Our church is striving to be like Christ, and and we have lots to be thankful for. And you're a regular guy who just decided now's a good time to be obedient. Basically, may God grant us repentance. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Well, listeners, thanks for joining me today. As always, if you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.